Good day, everyone. This is Mark Vina with more insights and strategy, and welcome to today's Mother's Day weekend podcast. As all of you know, we record these podcasts to talk about the most important topics in the tech space. I'm usually joined by my colleagues at More Insights for these podcasts, but today I'm very fortunate to have Walt Mossberg for today's recording. I've been privileged to know Walt for over 20 years. Uh, Walt obviously doesn't need any big introduction. Since the early 1990s, he's been a powerful voice in the tech reporting space at the Wall Street Journal and then later at the Verge and Recode websites. Uh, and when I think about it, it's almost embarrassing how long I've known Walt, but it's great to have him here today. Walt, welcome. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. And uh, it's true that you and I have known each other an embarrassingly long amount of time. Yes. In fact, the way I, I think I measure how long I've known somebody is when I met you and you, you just started writing your column, the technology column for the Wall Street Journal back, I want to say 1991, if I yep, recall. That's right. And, and th- what will date us is I th- still think there were three and a half inch floppy drives in the PCs that were out there. You kind of oh, yeah. I like, the, you know, so that c- kind of takes you back to the day. And, uh, you know, Walt's done a variety of different things. Uh, 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 in his career, not just writing. He's, I, I think you're most famously known for your column, of course, at the Wall Street Journal, uh, Walt. But uh, you've also done some really incredible stuff. I know that you, uh, when you were working with Kara, uh, you, know, you were obviously, um, you founded uh, All Things D, if I recall, and you did some yep, very Kara, memorable... Kara Swisher, yeah. And you did some very memorable stuff. Um, what I love, and I, I had a chance to go to a, several of them, so I, I, I feel like I was there for history. But you know, you did a number of memorable code conferences with some very famous people, uh, and uh, that must have been a very exciting thing to do because you got a chance to witness a lot of these technology events, frankly, taking place before you. Yeah, no, I've been very lucky, and have uh, had a great career, and I retired. Uh, about eight months ago and um, uh, still busy, but, you know, it was a long run and a great run. And uh, uh, so writing, TV, podcasts, and, of course, those conferences were really all the uh, all the important figures uh, in the last 25 years of, of uh, technology, as well as media appeared uh, on our stage and we would interview them and have conversations with them so that was terrific and, and this is probably a tough question this is probably like asking johnny carson who was the best guest you ever had on the on his program but if there was one particular interview that you did during the the, uh, the uh, conferences is there anyone that kind of sticks out in your mind well you know there were look there are our guests were typically ceos Although we did have some th- people like presidential candidates and um, uh, artists uh, sometimes, but um, and you know you can have a great CEO who's not particularly good at doing a a, a public interview, right? Uh, and you can have a person who's great at doing a public interview and is not a great CEO. Um, I think uh, in general the two people who were great hugely influential CEOs and also good on stage were uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs who did uh, multiple interviews individually. But mm-hmm. if you're going to ask me for my favorite or my the thing I think was the most uh, significant in history making, it was the year, uh, in, it was in 2007 when we got the two of them together 
on the 30th anniversary of the first mass market PC, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, the Apple II and the Commodore PET and that, and there was a Radio Shack that came out in 1977, uh, of which I think the Apple II lasted the longest and probably had the biggest impact. But, um, you know, we got them together in in, uh, 2007, uh, and it was the first time they'd been on stage together to be interviewed, and uh, they, I think, they were terrific. And uh, you know that interview is still, yes, uh, we know it's available. Well, it's pirated, available all over YouTube, but it's also available for download in audio or video format on iTunes. We put it up there free uh, for people and. Uh, it's you just have to look for some reason you have to look in the podcast section but right. there it is so yeah i would that would that was probably my my favorite but i have a lot of favorites actually i mean right. there were a lot of fun ones and uh smart ones and uh just generally interesting yep yep and uh, i will make the comparison to like having when frank sinatra had dean martin and jerry lewis kind of bury the hatchet <laughs> <laughs> the oh, I remember that, yeah. yeah remember that, I'm but, old enough to remember that, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you know, one of the things I do want to uh, talk about a little bit in detail is that, and I know it's a project that's very, very close to your heart. Now, since you've retired, and I'm using air quotes because I just can't see you as the kind of guy who retires, but, you know, you, you have retired, is that, you know, since the, um, you know, uh, you know uh, retiring, you have been focusing on something called the news Literacy Project, or NLP, which is the way it's referred to on your website. Let's talk a little bit about that and why, you know, why I know you're very passionate about it, but why you're so passionate about it and and what's its mission. Okay, so NLP, News Literacy Project, is a nonpartisan, very important, and and nonprofit uh, organization here in D.C., uh, based in D.C., but we we have staff in other cities, Chicago, New York, Chicago. elsewhere who uh, and it's not a huge organization but it's growing very fast and its mission it's a 10-year-old organization it did not start in reaction to Trump or the fake news scandals of the last uh, 18 months or whatever uh, and it's dedicated to uh, teaching kids uh, in middle school and high school um, how what we like to say is how to know what to believe and by that we don't mean, you should believe only conservative things or only liberal things or only things by this uh, journalist or this TV network or this newspaper, but how to actually do critical thinking, how to evaluate whether a story you're seeing is is true or fake. That's one of the goals of this, but it goes beyond that. It's um, how to evaluate, uh, is this a biased story? Is it not? Uh, how to evaluate, uh, and regardless of the bias, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter to us. Uh, and uh, or how to evaluate. This sounds like you shouldn't have to teach it, but you do have to teach it because people don't get the difference. Even adults, you have to say, how can you tell the difference between a, a, a straight story, an opinion column, which is where, where the person has been given license to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond just reporting the facts and satire, which were obviously something like the onion where obviously mm-hmm. <laughs> they're making, right. they're just making stuff up to be funny. Uh, and those are just some of the things we teach. We also teach the importance of a free press. What do journalists do? Why is it in the constitution? 
and uh, and uh, this is all delivered in a digital curriculum that any school system in the country, any individual school, like a principal can decide to use it in their school, or any individual teacher can use it, or librarian, or person that runs an after-school program, any of them can use it. There's a free version, there's a, a, a more uh, individualized, tailored version uh, that costs a very small amount per student, and uh, although it's it's free now, but it will, will in the next school year cost a small amount per student. And um, uh, we've been uh, growing fast with it. It's in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. It's in ni 91 foreign countries. And you can people can just go to check. The name of it is Checkology. And it's a turnkey thing. I mean, it's not a bunch of paper materials that the teacher has to worry about. They can just, uh, you know, either uh, project it onto a screen in the classroom uh, or uh, they can uh, stream it onto the st screens of the students' uh, own devices. Devices, uh, right. Well, you and, know, you know, Walter, and why I think it's such an amazing thing to do is, you know, someone I'm not a, obviously a journalist, um, and I, have, I wasn't that lucky to become a journalist in my career. But what's amazing to me is that since I have such a long perspective, like you do, on technology, and what's happened in the last ten years with the power of the smartphone and the power of tablet devices, which for many, many people, you know, they when they see something on Facebook or they see something on you know, some type of uh, app with, with, you know, again, using the air quotes around news, they, there are many people out there, not just children, but there's even adults that take that information as go the gospel truth. And they don't do a good enough job trying to understand the, what distinguishes between the two. And, of course, a, lo a lot of the information that gets published sometimes, they're not doing a very good job of, they, they don't want, they want to blur that line. They want to make, make sure people are confused around whether something's true or not. And, and it's a manifestation of how wonderful the smartphone has been, um, the kind of role it's played in people's lives. So I absolutely believe this is a very, very important initiative for you to be involved in. Well, thanks. I, I do, too. And, of course, we haven't even mentioned the fact that a lot of this, uh, some of this is coming from politically motivated Americans uh, right. or, or people from other countries who are real people but are politically motivated some of it is coming from people who just want to monetize something, and so they put sure. up some sensational story that's false, or maybe it's got a kernel of truth, but they distort it. Um, mm -hmm. But we haven't even mentioned, of course, that the Russians did this in uh, yes. vast quantities during the campaign and still are doing it, and the North Koreans do it. And, uh, you know, there was a very famous story uh, where BuzzFeed, I believe it was, discovered there was a village in Macedonia where these teenagers were making up fake news very carefully right. constructed to look like it came from a genuine newspaper that didn't exist. I think it was called the Denver Guardian. There is no newspaper and never has been called the Denver <laughs> right. Guardian. Right. Uh, and uh, they even built a website for it. It only had a homepage. It had nothing else, but it looked like a newspaper. And... Um, their their main goal what actually wasn't political it was just it was money mm -hmm. they wanted to sell ads against these these uh these things so um 
you're right. It's a huge problem. And I actually believe that what we are doing. So so there's a let me back up. There's a lot of people, as you know, putting pressure on Facebook and Google and other uh, uh, uh networks and 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 uh, uh, search engines to um, uh, take action to weed this stuff out and that's fair and that's right I believe in that they should be weeding this stuff out mm-hmm. uh, but we are working on the demand side we're we're going at after you mentioned that adults fall for this and you're right and we've had people say to us well can't you do an education program for adults and the fact is, it's really hard to change the habits and the minds of people who are 45 or 35, mm-hmm. 55. Mm-hmm. But if you can get somebody in the sixth grade or the seventh grade or the 10th grade, uh, you're getting them at a time when they're much more open to uh, learning new skills and learning a critical thinking. This is really about critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you also have to realize that if you've got someone in the 11th or 12th grade, when we do have a lot of those, um, they're going to be voters. In some cases, mm-hmm. they are voters because it's 18 to vote mm-hmm. and you graduate mm-hmm. high school when you're 18. Right. So we are directly educating actual, you know, very, very soon to be voters in how to know what to believe. And they can then make their own conclusion that based on the facts they've read, because now now they're equipped to to know that they're reading something real, that the solution put forward by the Republicans is the right solution, or the solution put forward by the Democrats is the right solution, or neither of them is the right solution, and they're going to vote for an independent or mm-hmm. run themselves, whatever it is, you know, and they can judge what the what how they feel about things in the world, but based on actual facts, we're not doing right. the judging judging for them, and so. Um, I am passionate about it, as you can tell. I'm glad to hear that you're passionate about it. Uh, And I am helping, uh, I'm on the executive committee of the board of this organization, and we are, um, uh, you know, we're doing, we we all have, we have other kinds of programs. We we, uh, have what we call news lit camps, news lit, short for news literacy. And when I, what it is, is we, we get a news organization and a school system in a city to get together and spend a day together. Uh, the news organization hosts the teachers or principals or whoever from the school system, not students, but the teachers uh, and the administrators. And um, they explain how they do journalism, why they do it, why they made these decisions. And the teachers can say, well, you, why did you screw this up? Or why did you write this headline this way? And so it's a great and, and it's a great exchange because the teachers can learn uh, about journalism, which, to be honest, as a lifelong journalist, I think we've been too um, opaque about. We mm-hmm. have been, should have been more transparent about how we go about doing our work. And we haven't. Uh, mm-hmm. Just to give you a small example, I would bet you anything that most people listening to this think the reporters who write the stories in any newspaper, whatever it is, that they also write the headlines, but they don't. Headline mm-hmm. writing is a separate skill in most news organizations, and it right. t- t- tends to be written by um, uh, editors, not editors who are your bosses or who run the newspaper, 
but editors with a small e whose job is to correct the er spelling errors in the story and make sure it's the the length and that's, mm -hmm. that's appropriate. But one of their jobs is to write the headline. Right. Uh, that's just a small example. So the teachers can learn that from the journalists, but the journalists can learn from the teachers what their challenges are, what their students are thinking or not thinking, and what they themselves wish the newspapers would do better. And so it's a great exchange between them. And we've done this uh, in about five cities so far, and we're doing it in uh, about eight more. We have scheduled places like uh, we, uh, New York and Lexington, Kentucky and Houston and L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so that's in it. You know, our main thing is this classroom program I talked about. But um, but we also do that. And uh, and so I'm, you know, just very proud to be involved in it and, you know, help. I help to raise money. Uh, uh, you know this, Mark, and your listeners will know this. Uh, if you're somebody like me and you've spent many years covering the technology sector for the journal and then for uh, uh, online publications, um, you get to know the CEOs of a lot of these big tech companies, and they're pretty wealthy people. Mm -hmm. So it, it when I was a working journalist uh, covering those companies, I could never ask them for money because that would have been unethical. Right. But now Different I'm story. retired, <laughs> Right. And I well, can go ask them for money, and I have been doing that. And they, and then some of them, several have been, but have them have been quite generous. Has well, let's talk about that for a second here. Is that because you do, uh, you know, you have been, you know, involved in such high level contact with many, many of the senior executives in Silicon Valley and you know, all throughout the country? Is that do they really get it? You know, I mean, and I, what I the reason why I say that is that. You know, regardless of the company you work at, companies have profit. If you're a public organization, if you're a for-profit company, your primary motivation is to make more money. And when, you know, because the topics are related, when the um, the Facebook hearings happened a few weeks ago, you know, there was a lot of. I mean, I, I was not particularly thrilled with them. I think you felt the same way. I thought the, the uh, I did. A, a lot of the questions were pretty lame, and it kind of was a reflection that we have. Um, Congress and, and senators who really don't understand technology, to be quite honest with you. They got close to some of the, the right questions to ask. But um, I guess my question really is, is that do the really big people who matter, the companies that matter, do they really get it how important this initiative that you've been working on is? Or they, do they, some of them pay lip service? Okay, Walt, thank you very much. Well, right, you, you, you know, you know I, it's, a, it's a great question, and I'll answer it uh, uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, there are big differences between these companies. Tech is not a monolith. Silicon Valley is not a monolith. So, for instance, um, and I, 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 I noticed this just this past week uh, when Satya Nadella, who is the CEO of Microsoft, as That's your listeners right. probably right. know, made right. some comments about privacy and uh, some of these issues. And they were very similar to comments that Tim Cook has made, the CEO of Apple. And mm -hmm. so there are companies like Microsoft and Apple that have been around a long time uh, where uh, the CEOs are more mature and where the companies are not primarily, I know Microsoft owns Bing, but they're not primarily 
their main uh, business model and source of revenue is not gathering personal data and selling ads and uh, or being in the news business really. I, I know Apple has a news product, but it's a curated news product that you can't. There can't be a fake news story in there. Because uh, extracts right. Because they're just telling you what's in, uh, in in well-known, trusted news sources from across the spectrum. Uh, and you can't just post a story in there without them uh, curating it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so those companies um, uh, do care about privacy, and they and they and when you go talk to them, they care a lot about this news literacy stuff. Um, Jeff Bezos, who's probably the richest of these tech executives right now, uh, happens to care a lot about it, and we know that because. In his personal capacity, not Amazon as a company, but in his personal capacity, he bought the Washington Post and has mm-hmm. has really improved it, uh, you know, or saved it. Really, it was, uh, you know, having to lay off more and more reporters and uh, being uh, able to do less and less. And now he's got it to where it's really humming. And I suspect it's also making a, a, a significant uh, profit where it was losing money before. Uh, so it's a kind of a win-win, both the journalism and the business side of it. So he gets it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, Facebook, since you raised it, um, I don't really actually think they get it. Um, mm-hmm. I think they get it a little bit more than they used to, but mostly in the sense that they're under attack and they have to do stuff to try to uh, you know, satisfy the European regulators, satisfy the criticism in the United States. Uh, and so they are working um, to do better. But it's inherent in their whole business model is uh, uh, whether when you're talking about about the quality uh, or the context in which news is presented there, it's in their business model, if they weren't under this pressure, to not give a damn about mm-hmm. what was being published on their platform. And, um, and in terms of, of privacy... They don't care about privacy at all, actually, no matter how much he goes before Congress and says we care about it and we have all these privacy controls. I know that you, Mark, and probably a lot of our other listeners here have gone to their privacy controls and they're almost impossible to figure out. And even if you do figure them out and spend a lot of time, and I have right. done so with my own account, tried to lock down a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, there's vast amount of information they know about you that aren't even covered by those privacy controls. That's so exactly right. That's exactly right. I, I don't think uh, – so I, I just think you have to distinguish between the companies and the way – when I said I had two things, uh, one thing is the companies are different. And the second thing is even the companies that are the kind of the biggest part of the problem um, are only moving at all if we keep the pressure on them. So we need to keep the pressure on them about fake news and about biased news and about uh, distorted news and all of that and about things like privacy and security uh, uh, and, and see that and make them see that it actually is in their business interest because people are going to, um, uh, you know, their business is going to suffer unless they fix this. Right. Which I think is a stage we've begun to be at with Facebook and with Google, as a matter mm-hmm. of fact. And so um, uh, that is the sort of the supply side. 
The demand side is what we're working on, trying to get these people when they're kids, when they uh, can be trained to think critically, which by the way, once if they learn it in terms of news literacy, they'll be able to think critically about other things in their life too, which is very good, I think, for people. Well, and, and, and you know what I think is really scary too, and I'm, I'm sure you'd agree with this, is that there, you know, when you're talking about this whole fake news situation, you know, most of that information is text-based. Uh, there might be some images, but you know, people, the, what, the situations that you cited where someone is trying to publish information, it's pretty simple to publish fake web pages that have that look authentic. And the, what what occurs to me is that, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that you saw this is that the director, Jordan Peele, the director who did uh, Get Out. Oh, I did see it, yeah. He did an absolutely scary AIS-based fake video of Barack Obama doing a PSA that, I kid you not, and I think you saw that, and I think he was using a couple of publicly available tools. I think he was using Adobe After Effects, and I think there's an AI app out there. I don't know if it's available to everyone called Faked App, and it created this extremely realistic you know, minute and a half um, video, not an animation, but a video of him saying some obviously crazy stuff. And the reason why I go down that path is that, you know, if you really kind of extrapolate this out there, um, you know, you talk about fake news, there's, there's all kinds of compromising things that can happen, you know, frankly, when all of a sudden you can conjure up leaders and and people who are influential saying, you know, silly, not just silly things, but things obviously that are planted to create the wrong impression or just plant misinformation. So that's really scary. You know, when you I think it's, it's extremely scary. And um, uh, the one you're referring to with Jordan Peele and Obama, and if the listeners haven't seen it, they should uh, check go, go check it out. Um, you know, that was designed to show the dangers. And so they showed you Jordan Peele happens to do a great uh, impression of Obama. So his impression of Obama could be taken when you see Obama, uh, his face and the lips are moving perfectly in Mm -hmm. line with what Jordan Peele is saying, which is the technology you're talking about. Um, uh, They didn't weren't trying to hide that. I mean, after like 30 seconds of it, they revealed they'd started doing a split screen and showing you Jordan Peele doing it. And the Mm -hmm. whole purpose of that was to show you how you can fake things. I saw, by coincidence, saw another one just today, much cruder, not using that highly sophisticated technology, where uh, somebody did it with Trump, and it was all about Trump apologizing for his treatment of women, mm-hmm. and um, they just strung together his actual voice. I mean, it was clumsy. They strung together his actual voice. Uh, however, I'm sure some people will believe it. The redeeming quality of it, like the Jordan Peele one, was that they saw uh, the woman who put it together or whose team put it together appeared at the beginning of the video and and smiled and winked and said, you know, we're uh, Trump won't apologize. So we're going to apologize, help him do it. And she winked at everybody. And so, I mean, it was like we knew you knew this was not real. Mm-hmm. And you could tell anyway, uh, but yeah, I agree with you. It's it's super scary, and we're we're going to have to start accounting for that in our. We already have started accounting for it in some of our uh, things that we that we would like. For instance, we do a weekly email newsletter just on the 
these issues of fake news, biased news, how to, you, you know, news literacy, and uh, lots of teachers subscribe to it, and they uh, are uh, head of education at the News Literacy Project, who writes the newsletter, has already been talking about this uh, deep faking, or whatever it is they call it, where the videos can be uh, almost imperceptibly done in a way that's fake, and, right. uh, and uh, you know, will it We'll incorporate that into our platform. We're also well, translating some of our platform into Spanish, and we're also doing uh, a new lesson for international markets. So, great. Well, uh, is there a specific website that uh, folks can go to to learn more, or should we just point people to the uh, the NLP website? Or is there a- well, NL- NLP dot uh, or newslit dot org is uh, the organization's website but to look at this tool this platform that is like a turnkey thing that a, any teacher can use uh just go to checkology c-h-e-c-k-o-l-o-g-y checkology.org that's the name of the classroom program and uh, you'll see a little sample of it there and uh, you'll learn more about it oh that's great that's great well i hope i wish you much success because, and I don't think this is an overstatement, I think American democracy, <laughs> you know, depends on uh, uh, you and other folks being successful in this area because it, the implications are scary if, it, if all this stuff goes on unchecked. Um, but before I let you go, I do have to ask you a couple of questions about putting your technology hat back on. Anything interesting uh, in, over the last year that you think is kind of compelling, deserves people's attention i know that's a fairly wide you know open-ended question but you know what kind of the things that that's on your radar screen um beyond the well uh, you know uh first of all i never have taken my technology hat off i'm just not writing columns and doing my podcast cnbc and all that stuff i i used to do every week mm-hmm. um so i follow things pretty closely still i i think um yeah i mean you know I uh, less than a year ago, I wrote my last column or roughly a year ago, I wrote my last column. And in that column, I said, you know, we're in a very interesting, unusual period where the exciting blockbuster game changing consumer products are not uh, hitting the the actual market Mm -hmm. in the kind of cadence and quantity that they did during the 90s and the 2000s. Um, so, for instance, you know, you, even if just think about one company, you had, you know, you had the IMAC. We just had the 20th anniversary of the IMAC being introduced. Right, right. Which was, you know, the first computer built from the ground up from the Internet and the first computer built uh, for, with design in, my, in mind and super simple setup and all those things. Uh, and... Uh, then you had the iPod, and then you had the, you know, the iPhone and the MacBook Air and the iPad and all of that stuff. That was an incredible thing. We're not in that kind of a period right now. Not only with Apple, but with any any of these companies. I mean, you another good example is you you and I both remember that when Windows ninety five went on sale. And it was boxed software in those days. There were I mean, lines overnight at the store. Yeah, the stores opened those were opened at midnight. Right. And of course, everybody remembers the lines for the iPhone. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
at, at all over the country and the, all actually all over the world. So um, that kind of, oh, there's a, here's a new product and it's so exciting that everyone can't wait to try it or get their hands on it. Uh, we're not, that's not where we are. How, having said that, uh, during this kind of funny lull in the actual marketplace where all the new products are kind of incremental mm-hmm. and you know, not game changing, we have in the labs phenomenal stuff being worked on that is just not ready to be productized yet. So AI is what everybody obviously talks about, right. uh, virtual assistants. Sure, we have Alexa and we have Siri and we have Cortana and, 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 uh, and we have um, you know a, a, a couple of others uh, uh, like that Google Assistant. Uh, but um, uh, we're in the first inning. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we've started the first batter of the second inning. It's very, I mean, even the best of these, of course, you could demo amazing things in demos, but in daily life, you're not going to get, you're not going to really be able to have human-like conversations or get the right answer or all of this stuff. Some of them are better at some things and others are better at other things, but they're all uh, lacking in some way or another. Now, Google just this week, did an, a sort of jaw-dropping demo of a thing called... I saw that, yeah. That was very cool, but also scary at the same time. It was very scary. It has lots of social implications. Uh, what they had was their assistant, but speaking in a completely human voice, calling a customer service person and setting up like an appointment, I think, for a haircut was the example. Yes, yes. And it was there's a, just like a conversation you would have about well, that time, do you have an appointment on this day at that time? And the person, not realizing they were speaking to a robot, said, uh, no, but we can do this time. And what does what what is the service the person wants? And the robot says, we're just a woman's haircut and whatever. And the whole, and it was quite amazing. But they made it clear that this is a lab thing. They're not ready to ship this. But of course, it did set off a lot of... Um, uh, uh, worry and commentary about, oh my God, if we have robots that can't be distinguished from humans doing these kind of tasks, how are we going to cope with that? And I would say in general, uh, to go back to your point about the senators and congressmen, and by the way, the House members did better than the senators <laughs> on the Zuckerberg hearings. Um, mm-hmm. I think the government is, uh, the law, the legal system and the social norms are way behind on this. Uh, on AI, on privacy, and on security. The other big technology that I'm convinced is going to be a, a serious factor in our lives, and Google showed uh, some of this as well, and so did Apple in its last developers conference. Um, it's built right into every iPhone. If you get the right apps that make use of what Apple puts in there, you can mm-hmm. see it. And that's augmented reality. Uh, and I'm careful to not say virtual reality. Virtual mm-hmm. reality is, uh, in my opinion, a niche thing. That doesn't mean it'll be small. People, companies can make plenty of money off it, but it's more for gamers. It's more, probably has industrial uses that are useful. Uh, I think augmented reality has the prospect of being a much bigger thing because you're. it can be built into glasses and this is actually being worked on by many thousands of developers right now and engineers 
and designers in mm-hmm. all of the five big companies and then a whole bunch of smaller companies uh, and some companies we've never heard of. Uh, they're all working on making glasses that just look like regular glasses. Glasses, not, right. Not bigger and not heavier. They're not goggles. They don't need a, another computer. And this is not an easy thing to do. you got to fit processors and batteries and sensors. And the glasses still have to be able to be prescription for people. And, you know, you look. You will look through those glasses. You will see the world around you. So you don't lose touch with that. And you'll be able to have, make virtual objects appear. Uh, virtual furniture. If you're sizing up whether to buy new furniture for room. In the mm-hmm. real room. Standing in your real right family room uh there's already an ikea app that does this 2d on the iphone but what if it could be in your glasses what if you know princess leia could appear uh right in front of you and say you know please help me obi-wan you know i mean that is those are not jokey things that i'm saying no they're not no no they're not demonstrable as lab demos, we don't have them yet in daily life, but we're not very far. I think by the end of this, uh, by by certainly by ten years, and maybe by with the glasses, I think it could be even three or four years. We're going to have them, and uh, you know, like everything else, they'll probably be a little heavier than they might be eventually. Have worse battery life than they will eventually have. They won't have as many cool apps as they'll eventually have, but that's so. AR is a is a big deal, and AI is a big deal, and of course they can be combined. And I uh, welcome uh, these cool things, but I also think we better scramble, um, as uh, unlikely as it sounds, given the nature of our federal government right now and the ver- the gridlock. But we need to scramble to um, figure out a way to get ahead of this. Right. Well, and, and the only thing I would you know, add to that, and I'm just going to circle back to this one last question, is that you, you, know, you wrote, and I remember your first column back in 1991, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but you wrote, I think it was the first, it might have been the first sentence of the article. You basically said, you know, PCs are really hard to use. And it's not your fault. I mean, it's an it was an oft-quoted phrase that a lot of marketing marketing people like myself kind of took. No, you're right. That you know, was the first sentence of my first column. Uh, that's a paraphrase of it, but that was was what it was. Yeah. And and the, and the question I have for you is: you, you flash forward from 1991 to 2018. You know, it is, and I'll just take PC out. But is technology really easier to use today? You know, I mean, there's such a hum, it's such a there's such a wide swath. Of technology products, whether it be you know PCs or old, you know it's old school stuff. You know the uh, you know devices like what uh, F- uh, Facebook announced the other day, the Oculus Go and other um, AR type of products. There's just such a wide variety of products that it can be overwhelming. I mean, just the menu of technology today available to the average consumer is much broader than it was back in the early '90s. So, any commentary on just the whole ease of use? type of thing you, you or do you think technology is getting easier to use or do you think that the industry has a responsibility to do a better job making just technology generally easier to use well yeah okay so first of all a couple of things yeah the answer is yes it's easier to use than 1991 it's easier to 
it's easy to forget that in 1991, and really until the iMac in 98, uh, you know, cut a lot of the complexity out of the PC, uh, in 1991, most Windows PCs didn't have sound. You had to go buy a sound card. Sound card, that's correct. They that's didn't correct. Cert- They didn't have connectivity. You had to buy a modem, external modem or a card inside. They'd, a lot of them didn't even have a graphics card. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could do very crude graphics, but if you wanted to do any kind of serious graphics, you had to buy a graphics card. And, and, right. and the whole idea was you had to you know, take the cover off and screw all these things in and hook up the wires and then put mm-hmm. in the drivers and the software. You know, you forget these those days. And um, with the, uh, you take printers, which a lot of people don't even use today, but um, to set up a printer was a hell of a, a hell of an exercise for mm-hmm. a long while. And now the operating systems, uh, you know, using the ability to download on the fly from the cloud are able to do a lot of the heavy lifting and, and recognize and, and, yeah, what right. printer you've got. You've just plugged in and just, just, there's no printer CD, driver CD. It just, just gets done. So it's easier. The second right. thing is the PC is the smartphone today. That is the PC. I mean, I understand mm-hmm. we, we, we use that word PC either to mean all personal computers, including Macs, or just to mean Windows personal computers. It's a legacy term and we still use it. But the personal computer that people use to do 90% of everything is the smartphone or in some cases the iPad. And by mm-hmm. the way, I say iPad and not tablet because there isn't any other tablet that, ha- <laughs> that right. matters, has any, any significant number of tablet apps or anything else. So, um, uh, you know, the, 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 or sells any significant number of units. So, um, the, uh, smartphone is the PC that is the, that is your personal computer. And depending on whether you think those things are hard or easy to use, uh, that's the answer to your question. I think they can be better. Mm -hmm. I think they have gotten more complicated in terms of the settings and all that. But I still think you can hand uh, an iPhone or an Android phone to a three-year-old, not exaggerating, Mm -hmm. and they and they can figure out, you know, some basic things to do with it without any help. And I I agree with that. You could never have done that with either a PC or a Mac in 1991. You couldn't. Yeah, and and where I was going really with that question was that. It's not so much the the how the, the, today's products are easier or not easy to use. I mean, generally speaking, uh, something that you buy that's in consumer electronics today is a lot easier to use than it was, you know, ten or fifteen or twenty years ago. Where I was kind of getting to was the sheer volume of different types of products, and especially products that work together, that you know, work together in the smart home or the connected home or home security. Well, you know, they, they, a lot of them don't play well together, you know, and that's you're very the confusing. expert on this. But I think IoT, smart home, uh, whatever you want to call it, is a hot mess. Mm-hmm. It's, it's completely screwed up. It's never going to reach its potential on the path it's on now. And uh, it's just not, it's not an important thing. Right. Uh, I mean, it's an important thing 
in theory, it's an important thing if you think down the road and you imagine that a number of changes occur which make it all work together. But it's uh, right now it's just it's just um, it's a hot mess. Um, if you're talking about but the other thing to bear in mind is when you buy a an Android phone, when you buy particularly in Apple, when you buy an iPhone, you're buying into an ecosystem. Right. So so if you have a, a, a an iPhone and you have no other Apple product, that iPhone is a very capable thing and it and it will you may love it and it'll do great things for you. But you're missing a lot because if you have uh, iCloud photo sharing and you have Apple Music and you have a Mac and you have an Apple Watch, you know, it, they all work together. Right. Uh, you get a text, the text comes in on all of them. You get a phone call, I'm sure you've experienced this, get a phone call on your iPhone, unless you have set it up to not do this, on your iPad or your phone or, or your Mac. Right. Or your iPad will ring. So if my iPhone is in some other part of the house and I'm sitting somewhere reading some, uh, like a book or listening to a podcast or doing something on an iPad, watching a video, and a call comes in, I can answer it. It's, it's a speakerphone call. Or mm -hmm. if you have uh, uh, AirPods or wired uh, uh, buds or headphones on, you can talk through that. Mm -hmm. And um, so you're buying into the Apple ecosystem. And similarly, Google has an ecosystem. You know, you, you have an Android phone, you have Gmail, you have Google Docs. Uh, if you have a Chromebook, they can all work together. In fact, Google is actually hardware agnostic in a way. You can have Apple stuff and use all the Google uh, systems. So you can have an Apple phone, I mean, a, a, an Android phone. But your PC is a Mac, mm -hmm. or you have an iPad instead of an Android tablet. If you have Google Docs on both of those and Google Photos, they'll all Sync they'll together. all together. So you're yeah. buying into the ecosystems now uh, more than anything else. Here's the perfect example. So I have a granddaughter. She's three and a half years old, and my uh, uh, son and daughter-in-law do not want to put pictures of her on. Facebook or public forums. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, you know, some people do it, and I'm not criticizing them, but there's good arguments why you wouldn't do it. Um, but the, they, so she has, my daughter-in-law has a, one of these protected Instagram accounts where, you know, in order to follow the account, you have to get permission and all that. So she can somewhat control who can see it. She puts the occasional picture, occasional, mm -hmm. once mm -hmm. a month. Once every six weeks. But every single day, I get a picture, uh, and my wife, we get a picture and a video, and the other set of grandparents and the uncles and aunts um, all get a picture, video of the granddaughter uh, doing something interesting or cute or whatever. How do we get that? We get that through an encrypted, highly... Uh, private system called iCloud photo sharing. I mentioned it a minute ago. It's part of the Apple ecosystem. Right. Google Photos is something similar if you're in that ecosystem. And so it's a social network. You, it, it, you, can, you can leave likes. 
You can leave comments, um, you know, uh, but it's private and it's encrypted. And so the child's identity and activities and location are all completely protected. And well, no, it's, 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 it's I'm sorry, it yeah. And, and what I'll just close on because we're way over time. And Walt, I do appreciate your time is that th there's one very practical reason why I myself have kind of bought into the Apple ecosystem. And it's, it's not so much that I'm obsessed with Apple is that I, and I'm sure you're like this. I, people in the technology space tend to be the IT person for their entire family, regardless of where they are. And I can't, I, I cringe at the idea that if my family, especially on the East Coast, had Android devices with 12 different flavors of Android out there and every manufacturer doing their own little tweak, I would never be able to support them. In fact, I was on a call with my mom uh, uh, again to uh, you know actually configure something, and it only took three minutes to do that because she has FaceTime, and we were able to, to, to uh, rectify what her problem was. But, I mean, part of the big issue that you know apple has a huge advantage is, is that if you do buy into the ecosystem you know that experience regardless of the class of device you have stays the same unless you have a really old device and the operating system can't be upgraded but i think that's an important point um as well but anyway walt listen thank you very much for your time i really appreciated this I'm, i hope we'll do it again i didn't ask you any questions about how the red sox are doing over the last couple <laughs> of years i hope that's okay I hope you raise your, your, your granddaughter to be a, a Yankee fan, and I'll follow up with you about She's that. She's already a Red Sox fan. Even, <laughs> even before she could read, if she saw a Red Sox, she lives in Boston. If she saw a Red Sox shirt, she would point at it and say Red Sox. Oh, that's scary. That is so scary. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even go into that in depth. But again, thank you very much, Walt. Uh, uh, everyone, thank please. you for having me, Mark. Oh, I was excited to have you on. And again, everyone, please follow more Insights and Strategy on our social media channels, the usual suspects, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And until next week, everybody have a safe and great Mother's Day. Thanks very much. <laughs>